I guess I was a, a strong believer and adherent to servant leadership long before it was cool, I guess. It's just, it's just who I am. But I, I do believe in that approach of leadership, that philosophy of leadership. You know, it's, it has, has its trappings back with some writing that was done in the 1970s. I espouse to the belief that I always put the needs of others before mine. Welcome to Inside the Coaching Mind, conversations on leadership, coaching, and team building. Your host, Terry Pettit, led the University of Nebraska Cornhusker volleyball team from 1977 to 1999 and coached Nebraska's first ever national championship volleyball team in 1995. Here's Coach Pettit. There are thousands of ways people define leadership. Today on Inside the Coaching Mind, Ronnie Green, the Chancellor of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, talks about servant leadership, the response to the current pandemic, Black Lives Matter, and the role of Cornhusker football to the state of Nebraska. Hello, I'm Terry Pettit, the host of Inside the Coaching Mind. We had a wonderful first season in which we featured volleyball coaches in the state of Nebraska. With today's special guest, we are transitioning to focus on leadership. I cannot think of a more interesting and challenging role today than being the top administrator at a major university. Our guest today is Dr. Ronnie Green, the Chancellor of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Welcome to Inside the Coaching Mind, Chancellor Ronnie Green. Well, thank you, Terry. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I feel like I'm talking to one of the Husker legends, so it's a real pleasure to have the chance to visit with you, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. You've been chancellor four years, but in your lifetime, is this the most interesting time to be a chancellor or president of a university? Well, I suppose many would say it certainly is is full of plenty of challenges to think about the decisions that have to be made around a global pandemic and you know considerable social unrest. Those are challenges. But when I look back on history, Terry, and I reflect on the, you know, for our institution, the 151 years of our history going back to 1869, I can certainly look to other times where I would say that those challenges were equally as great, maybe more so. I've been reflecting on that a little bit over the last you know, few months as we've been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the implications of it currently and ongoing into the future. And a lot of folks have talked about the Spanish flu and influenza in the late 19-teens. Uh, and I, I had studied up on that history some time ago for our university. And if you look at that period of time of 1910 to 1935 for the University of Nebraska, it was a really challenging time. One of my predecessors, Samuel Avery, was the chancellor from 1907 to 1928 during that period of time. Um, I've studied Chancellor Avery quite a bit and learned a lot of what he was dealing with as the leader of the institution at that time. Think about it, World War One, the entry into World War One, the Spanish flu and the influenza at the same time as the last major global pandemic the world has experienced in in modern history. The aftermath of that uh, which was great economic uncertainty in Nebraska, which had a very uh, heavy agriculturally based economy, which of course we still do in our state. That was actually the first time as a result of all of that, that the major decision had to be made in 1923 to charge tuition to students for the first time in public education history. So uh, certainly I reflect back on prior times. Uh, we didn't live them. Uh, we heard about them. Well, you probably like me. You heard about the times of the 19-teens and 20s and the De Great Depression from our parents and our grandparents. So I keep all of that in context. You know, it is, certainly is a challenging time. We have big decisions to make that are important for our institutions, important for our society, important for the communities that we're part of. But I would say there's been other times that are equally challenging if we look back in history. Harvard announced that all of its classes would be online in the fall. Tuition would remain the same. How can a university attract its students back to campus if students know that 
the majority of their classes or maybe all of their classes could be online. What what can you do to to make it worthwhile to come back? Terry, you know, we learned a lot this spring. So when COVID-19 actually became a a daily thing in our lives back in March. We all remember it really well. I'll never forget March 11th and 12th. Those were two days that will live in my memory for a long time when the tide really turned and the nation really confronted this challenge that we were in or are in. Uh, And we learned a lot in spring semester. So as we had to make that decision to effectively close down for the remainder of the spring semester during April and May, late March, April, and May, and we had to pivot to really remote instruction across the board with no students in our classes or on our campus for instruction. We learned a lot. And one of the things that we learned was that we could do it. The ingenuity that was was exhibited by our faculty and our students here and around the country, I think, was uh, rather remarkable in that period of time. But we also learned the importance of in-face and uh, in-person instruction and the the high value we know that that has for learning and for the academy itself. So thinking forward to now that we are in dealing with COVID-19, that we have learned a lot about how to deal with the virus in our midst. We made that decision fairly early on in late April that we would, as an institution, go back to in-person instruction in what ways we can to accommodate the importance of that in-person learning and do it even if it's in a hybrid sense. This is, as you know, an evolving thing. The virus continues to evolve. The transmission of it continues to evolve. We're sitting here in early July, so we're aware of the resurgence of the virus across much of the U.S. just in the last 10 days. So we recognize the need to be flexible there. But with that said, we also recognize the importance of in-person instruction to what degree we can accommodate it. So our approach has been in planning for the fall that we will do that in every way that we can while practicing the importance for public health and safety of our students and our faculty and our community, which means that under those rules of guidance with social distancing practices and hygiene practices and personal protection practices to minimize the transmission of the virus, that we know we're going to be doing that at a reduced density we're going to be doing that in more hybrid models. If a student is in a class that has 100 students in it, for example, you know they will be in that class part of the time in person during the course of the semester. Other times they won't be able to be in the class because we'll have maximum capacity, if you will, in the classroom itself, but they will be in the room even well, if they're not there physically. As you know, my, my daughter's a reporter for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Sure. I've been reading articles about senior or older professors around the country being hesitant to return mm-hmm. to the classroom. Mm-hmm. Has that issue arisen at Nebraska? Yes, I think it's arisen for us. Uh, it's an important issue. It's arisen nationally. I don't know a campus in the U.S. that this hasn't been a, a major point of conversation and issue around. So you, if, if you look at our faculty at the institution, we're very proud of our faculty. I think you you know that from your time in history with the University of Nebraska. But our faculty also is reflective of greater society as a whole, right? So our faculty has the age demographic, where many of our faculty are in age brackets that are more uh, susceptible to or have, more, have uh, disproportionate effects of the virus as far as we know it today, or might have pre-existing health conditions or things that put them at risk for contracting the virus if it's transmitted in a community way. We have adopted the principle that our faculty can say to us that these are the conditions that we have under, you know, the same way we would accommodate a disability, if you will, or accommodations for Americans with disabilities under the CDC guidelines and under, under the public health guidelines where they will still be actively engaged in our instruction and our research and our education, but they will have to do it 
from a distance, and they will have to do it protecting their health, protecting their family's health. And we're working individually across the board with all of our faculty and staff to do that. I have to tell you, Terry, these you ask about times and when you're you know, in leadership where you, you experience these kinds of challenges. This isn't the first time I've been in a crisis kind of situation. I've been in a, I've actually been involved in a chapter 10, chapter seven bankruptcy uh, kind of setting in corporate America before and been in a leadership role. There, there's a lot of similarities, not to draw the, the bankruptcy analogy, that's not my point, but a lot of similarities to when people are challenged and when they're fearful when there is high level of anxiety and there's fear as a per, and there's personal fear, we have to be very conscious and aware of that and sensitive to that. The fact is we're going to protect our people. We're going to protect our faculty. We're going to protect our students. We're going to protect our community. That's been our approach from the very beginning. And so we're we're working in ways that will be flexible to allow that to happen, yet still have them engaged. If I have a faculty member that has the world's best expertise in this field, and it isn't an opportunity for them to still be engaged in the education of those students and do it in the way that we can to accommodate it, I will have failed as a, as a institutional leader. When I sent you a question about how you would describe your leadership. The, the response was servant leadership. That's a phrase. It's almost a buzzword now. Yep. Um, it's become it's become so common. I used to use it with my setters because they had to adjust to every person on the team. They had to put those players' needs ahead of their own. How would you describe servant leadership and how does it impact your leadership? Yeah, well, Terry, you did it. You did it kind of ask me about that and I guess I was a, a strong believer and adherent to servant leadership long before it was cool, I guess. It's just it's just who I am. But I, I do believe in that approach of leadership, that philosophy of leadership. You know, it's it has, it has its trappings back with some writing that was done in the 1970s. I espouse to the belief that I always put the needs of others before mine. That that's that's my definition of servant leadership. What is the right thing, the best thing to do for all, you know, in terms of being a servant in your leadership rather than than um, the reverse. So there's a lot of things wrapped up in that, as you know. I mean, you could list off a whole series of words that describe that that philosophy, and I don't think that's our, our point here this morning, but the discussion about how you navigate through this kind of challenge that we have. Uh, I think we all can agree that these last few months, as this pandemic has set in, we have not experienced this in our lifetimes. There are very, very few amongst us, right? There may be some very, very, very senior members of our society who will remember back to some of the times we were talking about earlier, uh, remember it in their families, but very few amongst us have ever experienced something of this magnitude before that has impacted the world in the way that this has and looks like it will continue to do for some time. Uh, as a leader of an institution of higher education, my view right now is we have a mission to deliver that is the mission of the University of Nebraska. That mission has education at its forefront and access to education at its forefront, as it has for 151 years. And we have a research and a scholarship and an innovation mission and an engagement mission with the people of Nebraska as the state's public land grant comprehensive university. That mission has not changed. Because of this global pandemic, we are under all kinds of conditions to try to figure out how to best and optimally and safely deliver on that mission. And we have to do that in a way that, of course, will protect the public health of all in the best way that we can as we navigate through what is still an evolving time period ahead of us as this pandemic is addressed right as we get to the other side of that pandemic so i hope that helps kind of gives some frame of uh of the view it's not it's not about me it's about uh, really le leading the institution and our people 
in a way that will help us deliver on that mission in a way that we'll all look back on and be proud of in the future. In my mind, servant leadership necessarily implies a more collaborative leadership. I suppose we'll write books about this one of these days, Terry, about this this time and, and how this time was navigated. I look back on. So when we first started dealing with COVID-19, front and center, when we really started dealing with it, that traces back for us to the middle of February, uh, much before, you know, the general population was focused on this. Uh, So we were daily in meetings and planning and working, what will we do if this occurs and if this happens and how will we adapt and what will we do as an institution. So by the time we made the decision to close campus, which was in that week of March the 12th, and move to remote instruction and so forth, we've been at it for a month and daily kind of think of it as a war room kind of setting, if you well, want, Will. And so so my point I'm going to get, get to is, I remember sitting in those meetings every day for hours with our team, with our leadership team, with the people who really are the leaders and the implementers of the mission of our institution and working collaboratively, working in a way that everyone was focused on that mission. Yes, it absolutely is collaborative leadership because you don't, you don't, I don't have all the answers, certainly don't have all the answers or all the wisdom or all the foresight, but uh, that group does. And who is on that leadership team? So that leadership team would consist of all of the vice chancellors in charge of various aspects of the university. So in the academic leaders, Elizabeth Spiller, and before her, Richard Moberly, who was transitioning at that time uh, as our executive vice chancellor in charge of all of the academic colleges uh, and academic programs across the institution. Uh, Mike Bain, uh, the leader of the Institute of Ag and Natural Resources. Uh, for the institution, our vice chancellor of business and finance, Bill Nunes, um, oversees all of the business operations for our institution. Our vice chancellor of student affairs, Lori Bellows, who oversees all of student life and student services for the institution. Our information technology person, leader of that, Heath Tuttle, who has become, you can imagine, has been uh, right at the forefront of many of the things we've been uh, working with through this crisis. Deb Fidelke, our director of communications for the yes. institution. Yes. So I have at Mike Zeleny, our, our, you, you, get, you get the uh, pictures yeah, of I, all I get, of I the, the leaders picture. of the institution. And they helped really think through all of these decisions with all of the facts on the table with the interest of how do we deliver on our mission moving forward and uh, collaboratively. That's impressive. Is that, was, there, was there someone from a, uh, a medical background or, or do you tie in the University of Nebraska Medical Center? Yeah, yeah it goes, yeah, I, I, it go, yeah, I, sometimes I say this and I realize it, it, it's a, it's a uh, automatically doesn't make any sense. It goes without saying, right? It doesn't go without saying if I need to, to say it, I guess. But it's, you know, yes, the University of Nebraska Medical Center, my colleague Jeff Gold, the chancellor at UNMC, also serving as chancellor of UNO here in the last couple of years. Jeff has been a, a, an ally, a resource at my side as well in making those decisions, and his team as well, I'm in athletics, so I've been in calls repeatedly, as you can imagine, around athletics over the course of this time. And uh, Chris Cradiville, uh, the leader of the Global Health Security Center at the Med Center, the group that was involved in a lot of the initial quarantine efforts around COVID-19, you might remember back in January and February. So yes, all of those additional people are at the table or linked to the table in these conversations, as well as our deans of the colleges and the leaders across the campus. So as we've gone through this, you know, there there has been that level of collaboration and thinking and foresight and focus on mission in context with our whole team of people across the campus. So we've had regular town halls with the leadership across the institution. So get think of 600 people on a Zoom conference call conference meeting that we've had regularly 
through this process to communicate with and get feedback from and work collaboratively across the institution as we try to think of the, the right way to approach not only last spring and this summer that we're actively in instruction in, but the fall especially, and what the fall will look like. So I, I can't underline the importance enough of well, the, the, this those, it's collaborative. It's absolutely the, collaborative. And those details the average person wouldn't be aware of. That's sure. That's good to know. I think I read somewhere that students, faculty, anybody on the, on campus will be required to wear a mask in public when they return, which was why I was startled when, I believe on June 26, Governor Ricketts issued a statement that any county or local municipality that required wearing a mask would potentially lose out on I guess it was $100 million of federal funds to fight COVID. Are state institutions not part of that? Or how does that fit in with how you're responding and how the, the, the governor's statement? Yeah, well, Terry, we, we spent a lot of time framing, as, as, as we've been discussing, framing our fall semester, framing the policies via which we would bring our students and faculty and staff back to campus and under what conditions and how we will operate. We spent a tremendous amount of time doing that uh, with guidance from the health professionals, obviously, and in, in that mix. And we, from the beginning, said that we will operate under the framework of what is best for public health, best for all in our community, and for, you know, we have to be conscious of the community of Lincoln, the community of the state of Nebraska that we're an anchor in in many ways as well. So with that in mind, that framework we developed had key components in it that we, we were very vigilant about. The use of personal protective equipment, the use of facial coverings on the best guidance of the health professionals. And we relied very heavily on the Med Center as we were talking about earlier. When we tested this, we went back and forth with them about what is the best guidance on facial coverings? What are the aspects and characteristics of that and the practices to be used to be the safest and the most uh, effective? And we landed on a policy that we implemented in mid-June for all on our campus of use of facial coverings within all buildings of our campus when social distancing cannot be practiced at the six-foot level when you're, if you're outside and you can't practice social distancing at that level, then facial coverings are required for all faculty, all staff, all students, and all visitors to the campus, right? So all on the premises of the grounds of the campus. Now, when the governor, uh, I'm not exactly sure what, what all of the intricacies were of the details of the governor's decision to, to uh you know, make that policy relative to municipal government facilities across the state and the CARES Act funding that you referenced, it doesn't apply to us. Uh, we, we very quickly checked that to assure that that's the case, and it doesn't apply to us. Uh, but, but our framework has been that is important. And while it's a challenge, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I find wearing a face mask difficult. You know, it's a challenge for me personally, but I do it because it's the right thing to do to protect my family, to protect the community that I'm in, to protect the individuals that are in our community that we have the, you know, we have the security in mind of for, for our students first and foremost and our faculty, certainly. So, so that, that's, that's the premise we're operating under. Not all agree on it. I fully recognize that even in our community, of our faculty and staff and our students, not all will agree that that is their best practice or that they will think that is their best practice. We're operating on the science that we have and the best information that we have that says, indicates that it is a best practice. And we're gonna follow that science to protect all in our community. And we feel very, very, um, uh, very good about that very good about that decision. I'll also reflect back that our faculty have felt very good about that, that it gives them an added sense of security of going into that environment. The best analogy I can use 
is I've, I've had in my thoughts and prayers a lot for the last three months, not only the people who are confronting COVID-19 personally, and we all have friends who and colleagues who have probably by now been touched by this themselves or their families, but think about first responders. First responders don't have a choice but to follow the best practice in terms of safety and hygiene and protection. That's similar to what we are saying here that that is the best practice. We should all be willing to commit to that social contract for the protection of all that we have. And in a matter at this, in this point in time, it's a, it's a matter of doing business. That's the way that, that we will see our business proceed. But really it also fits with the most important thing you said about servant leadership. It's the right sure. thing to do. It's the right thing to do. You know, it's, it's like, it's like I said earlier, you know, I, you know Terry, you, you make a really good point and I appreciate you, you bringing it back around to that because uh, the definition of servant leadership is to put others before yourself, just like we talked about earlier. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll continue to point the finger back at myself here. I, like I said, I don't like wearing the face mask. You know, I'm still trying to figure out how to keep it from fogging up my glasses, right? So I think uh, many of us uh, fit into that mold, but it's the right thing to do. And it's the right thing to do more importantly for others than even it is for myself. And we're, we're going to really work on that with our student body, with our community, that it's a social contract that we all have to protect one another and the community that we exist in as we move through the unknowns that still exist here with the pandemic. Before we continue our discussion with Chancellor Ronnie Green about leadership, including the University of Nebraska's response to Black Lives Matter, I would like you to consider a few ways you can support Inside the Coaching Mind. This is Dave Young, owner of Shortcut Content and producer of Inside the Coaching Mind with Terry Pettit. There are a number of things you can do to help keep new episodes of the podcast coming. Consider purchasing a book or video from terrypettit.com. Coach Pettit has two books on leadership and coaching and a poetry compilation on the site. Another way is to simply share the podcast with your friends on social media and then head to Apple Podcasts and give the podcast a five-star rating. And if you own a business that could use help with content creation or content marketing, such as podcasts, blog posts, books, and more, check out shortcutcontent.com. That's my business site where you can reach me to discuss ways to create unique content for your growing business. And now, let's pick up where we left off on this episode of Inside the Coaching Mind. I'm going to move into a different area. The, the death of George Floyd seems to be a tipping point. It continues to reverberate around the country. I don't think a couple days go by where it's an innocent black man is shot or killed. And we have to assume those events were happening before the death of George Floyd. They probably weren't reported or maybe there weren't people being arrested for it. How has Black Lives Matter impacted the University of Nebraska campus? Terry, I would say we, we uh, have had impact of Black Lives Matter for some time. You know, certainly the last month has been very vivid. I think it's brought to the level of consciousness of uh, the general population of people, things that are, it's at a different level than we have seen previously. While I don't like the fact that this disparity exists and these things are there, I'm actually glad to see that. I'm glad to see that level of consciousness raised on these on these issues. So you go back in our history, just over the last five to seven years, we have had several Black Lives Matter rallies on our campus at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I remember the first one in 2014. So, you know, that goes back some time now in our history. But this time is different. This is uh, very different. I actually made a couple of personal statements during the early part of June about how I felt personally about this, and then also made a statement in early June as the chancellor of the institution about how I felt like about this as the chancellor of the institution of the University of Nebraska. And one of the things I said in that communication was that now must be different. It can't be the same. It can't be the same, well, 
we see this, we hear this, but we don't address this. And this must be a, a different time. We are approaching it that way at our institution. Literally this morning as we're doing this podcast, we're in the process of having a second communication go out to our university community where I'm appointing a leadership group of five faculty to help lead us in a conversation about anti-racism and racial equality that we have never had at this level before across our institution. I'm very committed to that. I think it's important for us to go into that kind of journey of discussion, both in terms of education of what systemic racism is and systemic forms of that that exist. And I'm again pointing the finger back at us as an institution, and I'm saying I want us to look at us and what are our systemic forms of racial inequality and uh, racism that may exist and whether we want to acknowledge it or not in our own institution and in our own place and community here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So I feel, I, you can tell I feel very strongly about this. I will tell you personally, it is a very challenging topic for me. I think you and I actually have had some conversations about this earlier. You know, I grew up in the Deep South. I grew up at the end of what some perceive as the end of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. I still remember vividly. Uh, this is a memory I've carried with me throughout my life. My first day to get on the school bus to go to the public school in Botetot County, Virginia, in Western Virginia, was the uh, my county was one of the last counties in the state of Virginia to desegregate its public schools, and I was a first grader that year when those schools were desegregated in 1967. And I still remember my mother putting me on the school bus on our rural road outside of our farm and saying, now, Ronnie, you be careful with those other children. That's, some, that's what she knew. That was the society that my mother and family grew up in. And I, I've carried that with me my whole life. Those words you know, have meant, what does that mean? You know, be careful with those other children. Uh, so I, I just use that as a point of personal reflection here. There are systemic forms of racism that exist in our world, exist in our country, and we need to be able to confront them. What do you suspect might be a systemic racism at the University of Nebraska? We need to look at ourselves and we need to look at seeing whether, in fact, we don't even realize that because of the way we are constructed around a post-Civil War environment, and this, the systems that we put in place, the fact of the matter is, Terry, if you look at our faculty that I'm very proud of, as you heard me say earlier, we have one of the best faculties on the planet. I really firmly believe that for our institution. But our faculty is decidedly not uh, very diverse, right? So if you look at our faculty and you look at the percentage of our faculty that are African-American, for example, African or African-American. It has remained consistent from the 1960s. We don't have a very large percentage of our faculty that are African-American, that don't demographically represent even the number of students that we have that are African-American. There are reasons that exist that create that number not having moved. And we have to look at ourselves and say, why is that? Why, what are those what are those systemic things that cause that to be the case? And we have to look inwardly to ourselves and say, are there are there constructs that we have that are privileged to race, that are underprivileged and not privileged to other races? And I, so those are the kind of things I'm pointing to. I know those are tough things for people to confront. I'm f- fully aware of that, but I but I do think we have to look inwardly and say what what we think those are and what we should do about them. And and I would guess that a significant percentage of black students on campus might be athletes, might be athletes in football, basketball, track, track and field. They're certainly prominent. Yeah, we, 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 I think we, we certainly have a number of athletes who are people of color. Yes. Uh, we have a lot of other students who are people of color as well. That's also true. But yes, we say 
Terry, and we believe, we say that we're a place where everyone is welcome. We say we're a place that we're, where every person and every interaction matters. That's a credo that we, we've adopted at our university. I'm asking us to turn around and say, does that apply equally to all of us? And do our systems, does that apply equally for everyone in those systems? As I've listened to, and I've done a lot of this over the last you know, several weeks, I've listened to our faculty of color. I've listened to our students of color. I've, I've been very keen to listen, to not talk, to, to listen and listen to what they are telling me, the stories they tell me. They tell me stories that tell me that those words aren't the same to them. Those words don't mean the same thing to, to them, that they mean to me, that they mean to others who are not people of color. Um, that's a problem. It shouldn't be that way. And we, we have to look internally at ourselves and say, what, what, are, what are those things? What are they? What will we do to change them? And how to educate ourselves about what those things are. I know that's a challenging conversation. It's a conversation that we need to have. I think it's a conversation that we as a society have been trying to have, but we need to have it at a much deeper level as we move forward. I call this the time of great challenges. You know, we've been talking about disease challenges. I mentioned societal challenges earlier. This is one of those societal challenges, and it's a big one, a very big one uh, that is ever present. I spoke at a Martin Luther King Day breakfast here a couple of years ago and in Lincoln and big gathering every year of the community here. And and I told that story I told you earlier about the school bus in first grade. And um, and I also said, and I'm standing here now in, I think it was 2018, the time, standing here now in 2018, and I can't believe that 50 years later, we're still sitting here having these conversations at some of the same levels that we had them 50 years ago. I don't know, that makes, you, that makes one think, doesn't it, uh, about you know, what is the reason for that, that we're still having these conversations 50 years later, we're still trying to solve some of the same issues that are there. I think it does require some introspection on all of us. I have a friend who is a, he's retired now, but he was a basketball and volleyball coach in Pinehurst, North Carolina. And he, he happens to be black and we've been friends for at least 40 years. And we went over to Pinehurst to play and yep. we're about to enter the pro shop and a uh, fancy car pulls up, the rear trunk opens, white man jumps out, grabs his clubs and hands them to my buddy. Yeah. And, you know, we're both dressed in slacks and collared shirts. And my buddy's name is Terry. And he, he handled it graciously. Right. He said, you know, but when I asked him, how often does something like this happen? And he says, at least on a weekly basis. Right. You know, somebody who's at the, who is an exemplary citizen who won state championships is a pillar of the community, but still will run into slights like that. Yeah. I, and, you know, and Terry, I've been guilty of this in the past. I, I, again, I'll say I have, and I've looked back and I think about this. What we think is a slight, what I may think is a slight or be described as a slight it's not a slight to someone else, right? It's a, it's a life that they have lived their entire life where this has happened over and over and over again to them systemically. Those are the stories that I heard so vividly over the last several weeks, the honesty that was there and those stories by just really keenly listening to them. Too many of those stories happened on our campus. Too many of those stories happened in our community. And we, we can brush them off and say that, well, you know, uh, get tough. <laughs> we all need to be tougher or something like that. But that's, that's missing the point here. These things should, this should not be systemically a part of who we are or the constructs that result in, in, uh, in that as well. I just really feel like this time, as I said, is different. We, we really need to have these conversations and we really need to focus in on what is it here that is systemic that results in that being the case. Not, not focus on the slights, not focus on the, 
the identity of those slides necessarily. I think we spent too much time doing that in academia, candidly, over the, the recent history. We need to focus on what the cause of it is. And that's why we've declared here we really want to study anti-racism. We really want to study what racism is and what is anti-racism. How do we you move beyond your racist kind of thinking and and uh, approaches to life? So I, I'll leave it at that. But I think you get the the uh, the story here about how important I think this is for us moving forward. We are an institution of higher education of access for all. That means something, and that that should not say behind it unless you are, and then you get treated differently, or unless you know that uh, uh, enough said. You you get my you get my point. If I was involved in an athletic department, one of the things that I would require as athletes came back would be some type of session, perhaps documentary film on. Um, slavery moving through today. And then the other the other issue would be Title IX. I don't think people today have any perspective on it. They, mm-hmm. they, they, they think it's women have al- always had that opportunity. Right. Uh, but it really didn't happen until 1972, which takes us over into sport. Let me ask an accounting question and then and then uh, uh, another question that may be even more important than that. If Nebraska or the Big Ten, or if there is not college football this coming year, what's the financial impact on the University of Nebraska? Well, it's big, Terry. Uh, you know, Husker Athletics are a mainstay of Nebraska life. As you know, it's one of the very special things about Nebraska in a, in a lot of respects. And it, it's, it also is big financially here. So I'm consciously aware that the institution I lead has a $1.3 billion budget annually. Um, about $140 million of that is in Husker Athletics. Totally self-supporting, no state support, no taxpayer support, all revenue-based support. And we're one of the very few programs in the country in NCAA athletics, as you know, that is not only self-supporting, but also supports the institution where there are funds from athletics that support scholarships for general students. There are funds that go back into the academic programs with no student money going into them, right? Our students don't pay fees to support athletics like they do at many institutions around the country. So we're, we are conscious of the value of that, the value and importance of that here, but it is big financially. In terms of uh, football, you know, where there's been much conversation, as you can fully understand, about what will happen to collegiate football in the fall. Uh, while we're trying to see what pro sports are going to do, we're trying to sort out how we're going to academically have uh, things that the institution work academically. That's also a big question. Been in meetings all week about it. Actually, I just got off one this morning, early this morning with the Big Ten in this conversation. So if we don't play football, for example, if we don't think it's safe or we don't, things can't come together nationally for us to have a football season as planned in the fall, and we have to delay it to the spring or we have to modify it in some way, there are financial implications of that, no doubt about it. For us here at the institution, you know, our, our football program, our volleyball program, as you well know, and basketball to a to a degree as well are financially big for our our athletics budget. And football, if we were to lose a home game, for example, we weren't able to play a home game, the impact of that to the athletics budget is significant in the multi-millions of dollars per game before you get to the economic impact in Lincoln. Right. So the economic impact of businesses, the economic impact that's generated from from Husker Athletics uh, surrounding the university. So uh, so we're very conscious of that uh, as we think through those conversations. You know, the conversation has been very similar to what you heard me say earlier about the academic decision making. What is in the public health and safety best interests of our student athletes, of our community, of the university that has to be in parallel with that. And those conversations are tricky, but ones that we're navigating through very carefully with everybody in mind, 
right, with the student athletes in mind, the community in mind, the economy in mind across the board. Uh, so, yeah, it's a big it's a big conversation, no doubt is, about it. Is, is there any coordinated national conversation? For example, sometimes out of the SEC, you see, yeah, we're going to play, we're going to have fans, we're we're going to be partying, we're yeah. whatever. Well, you can you can imagine there's been conversation across the NCAA about this, of course. There's been conversation in all of the major conferences. We certainly are in communicate. We're in the Big Ten, of course, so we're having the conversation in the Big Ten. We also are having the conversation across with the SEC, with the ACC, with the Pac-12, with the Big 12, in the A5 conferences as well. I wish I knew exactly how it was going to play out. I don't at this point. I do know that there are multiple conversations occurring in different parts of the country that are under different challenges associated with the virus itself and what it may look like come August, September, that we're all trying to you know, predict, I guess, based on best evidence that we have. But there is a lot of communication. In answer to your question, there is, is broad is communication it, occurring. The ADs, for example, Terry, the ADs in the Big, Tw- Big Ten have been meeting daily since March 11th. So they've been in conversations every day, typically two hours conversations every day through this whole period. And initially, you can imagine it was around cancellation of basketball and spring sports and eligibility and all the questions that were needed to be resolved in the here and now. And then it shifted, you know, as you would expect to fall and what the next year was going to look like in preparation for the fall. So they've been at it. This is the same, I'm sure, in the SEC and the Big 12 and ACC and the other Pac-12 other conferences. And, and then we've been cross pollinating with them as well. Is it conceivable that the SEC could have a season and the Big Ten wouldn't? I wish I knew, Terry, I don't. Um, I guess it is conceivable that could occur because the conferences can make their own decisions of what they do. I hope that isn't what happens. I really do. I don't think it will be uh, in the best interest of collegiate athletics if that's what happens. I would be dishonest if I didn't tell you I'm, I I can't quite get to that in my mind that thinks that would be the solution that should be there. With the flip side being, we are very sensitive to the fact and very committed to the fact that there is a high degree of local decision making that needs to occur with these decisions, right? So if you think about beyond whether you have a season or not, right? So if we play football, we play volleyball in the fall, and we plot out what that season might look like or what accommodations there may be need to be to to control public health better, and we plot that out. Then the second decision is what do you do about spectators? What do you do about the venues that you play in? What are the what are the local decisions that get made versus the conference or the NCAA decisions that get made? And we've been very committed to in our conversations in the Big Ten that those local decisions are important relative to your venues, right? So it's fully realizing that Nebraska is not in the same position that New Jersey is, or, you know, just relative to the public health scenarios that, that are in place. Uh, I would say today, we're not in the same position that uh, the University of Arizona is in, or that UCLA is in, just with the current status of what is happening. And we have to be very conscious of that. And we have to put that, yeah, can, that local decision-making in place. At the University of Nebraska, let's say that we decided to have a, um, a football season and there was a scholarship player whose family was essentially their grandmother and that they, they interacted with that person frequently. It was a very close relationship. And that person said, I can't do this. I can't compete. And take the risk that it could impact a family member. Would that person lose their scholarship if they said, I cannot play even though the school's playing because you're asking me to, to endanger somebody in my family? Yeah, well, we haven't hit that yet, Terry, as would be my first response. So I don't have a factual answer to give you right. that, that right. would support that. But, but um, I would hope that in the values of the University of Nebraska, that we would we would work with that situation. I would hope that we would, because that's who we that's who we say we are. 
and I would respect that need for that student. I know that, you know, there's a lot of conversation out there in the pro sports world about this, you know, as the NBA and Major League Soccer, baseball are are planning out how they move forward and the precautions and the things they're putting in place for testing and multi-testing and so forth. You know, we're hearing stories about how all athletes are not on the same page with this, even in pro sports. And there is concern about those issues of disproportionate effects of COVID-19 because of family circumstances or because of, you know, pre-existing health conditions. And with all of the unknowns that are out there, right, we, we don't know. We are a few months into dealing with cases of this virus. We don't know what the long-term health implications are. We don't know what the here and now implications there might be for a given individual who might be carrying the virus, not know it, but be you know subject to effects it may have. There's so many unknowns there that we have to uh, we have to uh, accommodate everything that we can to protect. It would be my my own personal view on it. In some ways, is this a preview? of the issues we're gonna to have to deal with a few years down the road in terms of the move toward online classes, the move toward more students not being on campus for four years, discussions about football and the health of, of football as we learn more and more about CET and, and those types of things. Is this forcing us to re-examine a lot of things that we have not had to look at Let's take one part of what you just said, Terry. Let's take the the education piece, right? Online, distance education, blended education, you know, some evolution that we're going through. So that, so higher education has been engaged in this evolution now for literally three decades, four decades. So you you can you can kind of think of online meaning you know when in the 1990s when the internet became real that things changed and then since then there's been this evolution but there's been evolution on this for a long time uh, i still remember as a undergraduate student at virginia tech being in the big lecture halls with all the tvs up on the walls that you'd see you know piped in lectures on, I, so that was 1979 to put that in context so there's there's evolution that's been occurring in pedagogy evolution that's been occurring in delivery of instruction for a long period of time we have see, certainly seen a ramp up of that in the last decade in what we think of as online education and online coursework you know designed online coursework we actually have very few students at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln today that don't take some of their courses online. You know, most people would not recognize that, but that's actually the preference of our students. The students actually say and choose to take some of their courses online. That's their preference to do that. Not all, as we talked about before, but some, some portion, and that's been a growing portion over time. So that evolution has been happening the conditions we're under today, how many conversations have you been in? I know I have been. Well, what do you think the future is going to be about workplace? Do you think everyone will go back to workplace the way it was? Um, will more people work remotely? Will, will Zoom be the new world? You know, Zoom or whatever Zoom's next generation is be the new world that we operate under? To some degree, I think there probably is some realistic, you know, we're Wonder if we did it this way. Wonder if we did it that way, that it's forced us into experience and think about here. And there may be some evolution that happens as a result of that. But I also know that the hungering of people to interact with people and the hungering of the need to converse with one another and to, you know, this is great for I can see you on the other side of the screen and we're having a great conversation and we can do that. But, but I would I would still much rather be in the room with you having this conversation, so we could really go off into a, a lot of other areas as well. Does that make sense? We'll see it fully replace. I really don't think that will happen, but I do think there will be a continued evolution of the way we see these things happen. We've we've actually learned ways that we can do things in this process of the last three and a half months that we didn't 
really embraced fully before that we learned really actually work pretty well and that we can do more of. I've been saying to our faculty, for example, and I, this, this comes from a person who's traveled a quarter of a million miles a year for 25 years. You know, it's been part of my lifeblood for a long time is to travel, travel, travel to get things done. I'm not hankering to get back on a plane. And I'm wondering why I needed to do that all those times in the past, other than, than just tradition and just expectation and norm. I'm anticipating I'll do a lot more of those things that I would have gotten on a plane to do in the past and feel the need to be in the room that I actually will be in this room instead that will be more efficient, that will be actually healthier and have a stronger sense of well-being as a result. So there will be some of that, absolutely some of that. Um, but I think that evolution of education is going to continue. I don't think it will I don't think it's going to be a 180. I think it will continue to have some evolution involved in it. Athletics that you bring up, whether it's forcing us to think about these things. I think we've been thinking about these things and been looking at these things over time. There's a lot of conversation in athletics, as you know, about a number of things currently. Health and safety certainly is one. Name, image, and likeness certainly is one for collegiate athletics and there's a very open and robust conversation about that that's now occurring nationally that I think we're going to see more conversation about at a national level so uh, we're learning we're learning if if I can I have two more questions I'd like to ask and you've been very generous here with your time the first one and you'll have to help me with this when we joined the Big 10 Nebraska was a member of an elite academic consortium and then then there was a vote to remove Nebraska. Did they not understand the importance of food and water? <laughs> Terry, you know who you're talking to, don't you? Yeah, so uh, they call me the Ag Chancellor for a reason, I suppose. But I, I lived through that time. I, I came back to the University of Nebraska to serve as the Vice Chancellor of the Institute of Ag and Natural Resources in 2010. And my first meeting, I actually was asked by Harvey Perlman, the Chancellor at the time, to come in a month early to meet with the leadership team, like we were talking about my leadership team earlier in the, the conversation, for their annual retreat where they were kind of planning out beginning of the school year and so forth. This was in June of 2010. I was to start in July of 2010. So we went to a retreat in Omaha, and I remember getting on the elevator in this hotel. We were going up to a meeting room in with Harvey. And Harvey looked at me and he said, well, he said, I hate to tell you this, but your first meeting is going to kind of be a bust because you guys are going to have to stay here and be the decoy for the press while Tom Osborne and I go to Chicago to talk to Jim Delaney about, about finalizing becoming a member of the Big Ten. So I always will remember you know, that very first thing that I did being about the Big Ten in that conversation. The AAU, the American Association of Universities that you reference, which is a longstanding back into the early 1900s group of research uh, predominant universities that work together around comprehensive research programs. Uh, we were a member of that. The University of Nebraska was one of the initial actually members of that institution, joined in 1908 when Nebraska, we were talking earlier and I was talking about Samuel Avery and that same kind of time period back to the beginning of the previous century. That was a time period where most people don't recognize it, but the University of Nebraska was the fifth biggest university in the United States. And it was considered to be one of the preeminent universities in the United States. I still say we are, you know, but it, but it was a time that we often were referred to as the Harvard of the Plains at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And we were named to the AAU. And for many years, we were the only institution in the middle of the United States that was a member of the AAU. There were a few that were added over time, but still there's kind of a hole in the middle of the US around those 68 institutions that made up the AAU. There was a big conversation in 2011 and 12 amongst the AAU because they wanted to keep their membership at, a, at the same size that it had always been 
about 65 institutions. There were a lot of institutions that wanted in to the AEU that had large research programs and they argued they belonged in the AAU. So the AAU undertook a review of institutions to see if they had the right constitution of their membership. We argued very strongly that the University of Nebraska absolutely belonged in the AEU, but because of the way our institution is structured, so over time, the way that the University of Nebraska system has been organized, the med center sits as an independent campus of the system. The uh, UNL sits as a campus, UNK, UNO, as you know, but UNMC and UNL are separate entities in accordance to the AAU. And as a consequence of that, they looked at our research portfolio and saw us as less than other institutions that did not have that arrangement. So it was medical research. It also was not valuing agricultural food and water research in the same level, which is an important part of our portfolio. About a third of our research capacity here at the University of Nebraska is our leadership in those fields internationally. So uh, I got over it pretty quick in 2012 when that decision was made for the AAU to, to invite others uh, and for the Nebraska to no longer be part of that group, uh, I get and I get asked often about this and whether there's an opportunity for us to be back in the AAU. I would like to think so, but I think it will require us to think about our structure in a way that the Med Center and UNL are counted together. That's an issue that that perhaps we can address um, in the future. And, and certainly in a crisis, we return to a hierarchy of needs, and food and water are in the American mindset right now much more than they, than they have been. My final question is, I understand that you and your wife, Husker Jane, uh, <laughs> met at a feedlot. I don't know if that's accurate or not. How important is Jane to your leadership? And in what ways is she important? You're, you're right. Jane and I did meet in a feedlot at Michigan State University in 1983, I think it was, when she was a, had just finished as a student here and I was going into my senior year at Virginia Tech. But it, you know, she's very important to me beyond being my life partner and the love of my life. She also is important intellectually for me. I'm very fortunate, I'm sure many would say this, that I, I absolutely am very fortunate to have uh, to have uh, a life partner who also is a lifelong Nebraskan, who also is, is deeply rooted in this place. Uh, we may have lived away from Nebraska for part of our life, but she never left it. That's just who she is. And so intellectually, she understands Nebraska at a level that even though I'm, I'm, I've lived here much of my life, I will never feel at the level of depth that she does from her, her soul. So that piece is important, you know, in terms of leading this institution for me. Uh, she also is just a really good thinker and a really, really good thinker. She doesn't make decisions for me, but I will tell you that I often have conversations to pick my wife's brain because she's just such a good thinker. And um, like me, you know, she also is a firm believer in servant leadership. She understands that um, and lives that daily. So I, you know, I put people often I kind of ask that question, right? So if, I, if uh, Jane was the chancellor of the university and I was her spouse, she might get asked that same question. And I, I'm guessing she might answer it the same way without the Nebraska part, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so I, so I, I hope that uh, explains it to you. I, I call her Husker Jane. We, we get ribbed about that a lot on campus. Um, the reason that reason for that is we have four children who are adult children, 31 down to 23 now. As we were raising our family, part of that time in Fort Collins, Colorado, where you, you now live, the standard line in our house was everybody referred to Jane as Husker Jane. Everybody did. Her friends did. Our family did because she just lived, breathed, and walked Nebraska and lived, breathed, and walked Husker Athletics, I think, as you well know, and her love for Husker Athletics. So uh, just a little bit of context on where that Husker Jane 
moniker comes from for her. I'm pretty fortunate, Terry. Chancellor Green, it's been a pleasure talking with you this morning. I know you love to sing. Would you be willing? (laughs) John Cook tells me that. He says, Ronnie loves to sing. (laughs) That John gets me. John John gets me in more trouble than it's. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't know that John loves to sing, but <laughs> could could you sing us a few bars of something to take us out this morning? Well, uh, I suppose there's one that's pretty easy for all of us. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I'll I'll try it, Terry. We'll see how it goes. There is no place like Nebraska, dear old Nebraska, you, where the boys are the squarest, the girls are the fairest of any old place that I knew. There is no place like Nebraska, where they're all true blue. We'll all stick together in all kinds of weather for dear old Nebraska, you. If you want to stick together and provide support for Inside the Coaching Mind, hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. Visit terrypettit.com for leadership and coaching resources and shortcutcontent.com for help with content on your website or business.